thank you for this opportunity to gather in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful that we have a place to come, a place that's sheltered in, in this area here, the sanctuary in, in, on this property that has been set aside to worship you, to set aside to study your word. Our children are learning tonight. Uh, we're here, God, to fellowship together and to hear your word. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would speak through the words you've spoken, through the Bible. Teach us as we open it now. In Jesus we pray, amen. Genesis chapter 2, but we'll start in Genesis 1 tonight as we work our way uh, through this exciting portion, these first two uh, chapters of Genesis that are foundational in terms of really the rest of the Bible. And there's so many reasons. We'll look at one tonight. We're going to look at, at the creation of woman, and we'll look at marriage tonight because that's the topic of, of, uh, of our text as we, we go verse by verse through the Bible. So here we find ourselves uh, tonight in Genesis. But I want you to look with me at the uh, first account, the original account in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, where God changes the verbiage, as you recall, from let it be, that's light, let it be, fish, let it be, bird, let it be, let it be. He changes the verbiage, and we read it here in verse 26. Notice with me, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And we talked about how God was speaking with himself and the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're having this conversation, and they're going to create man. And so here's the, the general account here. We, it goes on in verse 26. Let them, the man, have dominion over the fish of the sea. So over God's creation, he gives man dominion over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over the creeping things that creep on the earth, interesting that he included reptiles and snakes and things. So God created, verse 27, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. And to you, man, it will be for food. So man starts out in the garden. We looked at that last week in chapter 2. In the garden that God had planted, these beautiful trees and provided vegetation, and that's what man's diet consisted of. Have you ever thought about that? Man originally, his original diet was vegetation. That's what man ate in the garden. So chapter one, we get this creation account of the whole universe, and then we come to this, this wonderful, wonderful account of the creation of, of man or man's formation. Now it's in chapter two that we get more detailed. Chapter two is the details of man's creation. We saw that last week, the creation of man and where man was placed or man's home in the garden, look at verse uh, 7 of chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so, again, we looked at that, and we talked about how man is different than every animal in the world. 
although man and animal are made similarly out of the same components, the same material. We are made out of the same chemistry, dust, man and animal, same stuff. But, but man has this wonderful raka. God breathed. He breathed into the nostrils of man, and man became a living thing, meaning that man is different than the animals because we have God's stamp, we're made in God's image, and we were uh, given this breath of life from God. That's the eternal side of man. Unlike animals, man has the eternal side that will never, ever die. You have a body, that's a tent, that's a temporary dwelling place, right? And the body gets old, and the body starts hurting, and the body's aches, and, and the older you get, I'm just referring to myself, by the way, the older you get, the, you know, and then pretty soon the body ceases to exist. God didn't make your body to live forever. But there's two components, the soul and spirit. They live forever. They'll never die. In fact, if you don't know Christ, you're going to live forever. That's what the scriptures teach. You'll just live apart from God. But God has made a way for man, and we've, we know all about that Easter and what a wonderful celebration we have. So we come now to the creation of woman. So chapter 2 details man's creation, now woman's creation, and we come to verse 18. I've called this study Adam's rib, or God creates women. Naturally, you understand why. But in our text, we're going to see that God's creation of woman will also help us to understand God's design for marriage. Because that's what's happening. God created man, then he creates woman, and then the purpose, the purpose for man and woman, we're going to see that tonight. So let's read the text, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the earth, or out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field. There's the reference to the elements that every living thing is made out of, and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, birds of the air, every, notice, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Here's the first anesthesia there, and Adam slept. Here's the first surgery, and he took one of his ribs and closed up his flesh in its place. So God does surgery on Adam. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he formed, he fashioned, he made into a woman. And then he brought this new created being, this woman, and he brings this woman to man, verse 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and here's Moses' commentary. This is, remember, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So Moses is going to make a little inner uh, commentary here. Notice what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, but they were not Ashamed. Now, this section is obviously God's design for marriage. Someone said this, love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. I like that. Marriage truly is an eye-opener. Now, I've, I can speak that way because I've been married, happily, wonderfully married for 38 years. So, the, 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 you don't have to do that. 
the, the truth is, yeah, there's a lot of people married here longer than me um, that I know, but here's the, here's the beautiful thing. In those 38 years of being married as a believer, I've learned so much, and it's all come from the scriptures. It's come from the scriptures. You want to have a happy marriage? You want to be successful in your marriage? Then obey the scriptures. It's all here for us, and tonight we're going to get some of that information. The, the, the purpose for marriage is going to be here. So don't, don't just, if you're single, if your relationship's on the rocks, if there's, listen to what the scriptures have to say. There's, there's some important stuff here for us. Um, I have for years, I've been a, a pastor now since 1986 was when I started uh, in the ministry. And over the years, I've done many, many uh, weddings. I've officiated at many different weddings. And every one of them has been beautiful. Everyone's been special. But one of my favorite stories about uh, a wedding involves a young minister. He's doing his very first Wedding ceremony, I actually remember mine too, and it's just so nerve-wracking. You, you don't want to mispronounce their name. You, you want to do everything just right, you know. And, and so this young minister had all those thoughts, and fearing he might forget something, he, he, he went to a, an older pastor, and he said, hey, how do I do this? I don't want to miss anything. And the experienced pastor told the young minister everything he needed to do. And he said, here's, here's the best suggestion I can give you. If you ever forget what you're supposed to do in the middle of the ceremony, just quote scripture. You'll be fine. Just, just quote scripture. That'll give you, the, it'll buy you some time. You can get to the next thought. And so he went to the ceremony, and the ceremony was lovely, and it went smoothly until he pronounced the happy couple husband and wife. At that very moment, his mind just went completely blank, and he started to panic. And then he remembered the advice of the old preacher to quote Scripture, and so the only verse of Scripture he could remember was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> Marriage really is a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's just a joke. Okay. So here we have tonight this portion of scripture, the quintessential scripture on what marriage is, what, what uh, husband and wife are to be, and where they line up in this wonderful relationship that God's designed. We began with Adam in the garden. That was last week. We looked at him. Now remember, when Adam was in the garden... There was no sin. It was before the fall. That's the important context that we're even going into this creation of woman. There's no sin. There's no immorality, not a hint of it. Everything in the world is perfect. And that's when God makes this statement that is so astounding and so shocking. Look at it with me in verse 18. God says, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, Obviously, God knew we would read this, and, and he wants us as the reader to understand that he's preparing to do something. If man isn't good because he's alone, that means he's, God's going to remedy the problem. So he's kind of getting the reader. He knows that we're going to look at this. He's trying to prime us. And here's my first point. There's a partner needed. In verse 18, there's a partner needed. Now, the important statement for God here that we cannot overlook is this statement, it is not good. That statement right there is very, very important because we have just studied for 10 weeks, chapter one, and as we've studied each and every day, we've heard at the end of the day, it is good. It is good. In fact, let me show you that six times, beginning in chapter one, verse 10, it's at the end of day two, and God called the day 
the dry land, pardon me, earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Day three, there was grass and bushes and trees and vegetation. At the end of verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Verse 18, it was good. He's saying it's perfect, it's complete, it's what I had in mind, it's, it's done. There's nothing extra that has to be added. There's no more evolution that has to take place. I created it and it's complete. Day six, verse 25, cattle and livestock, it's good. That word good, tobe, in the Hebrew means very pleasant or delightful or useful or beneficial or complete. So God is saying everything is good. Now we come to chapter two, verse 18, the beginning of our study tonight. And the Lord God said, it is not good. Isn't that interesting? That should stand up in your mind and you should see that as we read the scripture. Not good that man should be alone. So not good there, meaning not complete, undone. God wasn't finished in that area of man. And so God says, it's not good. And so here's what we learn from that. Now remember, God made Adam or man in his likeness or his image. So the likeness of, of God in Adam or the image of God in Adam was perfect. That's not what was a problem. That's not what was undone. Here's the, the, the driving emphasis as I see it. God made man for relationship. You were made for relationship. You were made for closeness, for intimacy. You were made to have a, a one-on-one relationship that is, is better and grander and more beautiful and more intimate and, and deep and, and uh, vulnerable. All of those, those describe the kind of relationship you were made for. In fact, isn't that what man wants? Isn't that what women want? They want that kind of relationship. So God has made and put this desire in man. He's made him for this this relationship, this deeper relationship, this close relationship. And that's why there's a partner that's needed. So, so listen, ladies, this is good, right? So Eve or woman is an answer to man's problem. My wife is an answer to my problem. My problem is it's, I'm not complete. I'm not good. I'm not right without Esther. And it, it, it doesn't bother me to say that. I know that's true. I've been on ministry trips for three weeks at a time, you know, in Australia. I did that so many times with Pastor John. And long trips and gone so long, and it's like, oh, you just want to be at home in your own surroundings, eating that food that you enjoy and and being pampered by your lovely bride. You know, I love that. And here I'm, you know, out in the, feel like you're in the frontier. Not really, you know, we're in a nice hotel and stuff, but it's not the same. And so you feel like you're alone. You feel alone. Adam was alone. He was lonely, and that's the key here. The answer for Adam's loneliness was not another man. Man was never meant, listen guys, man, man was never meant to find satisfaction in your hunting buddies or the car club. You'll never find that. You'll never, you weren't made for that. It won't, you'll never be complete if that's where you spend all of your time in the car club, you know, men with other guys, you know, in the garage, you know, the man's garage with the big 55-inch screen TV and all the tools that grind and make noise. And, you know, some people have this idea that that's, you know, you'll, man was never meant to find fulfillment in many or multiple women, Never. Man was, 
was meant to find fulfillment in one woman. That's what this text teaches here. God's answer to man's loneliness is one woman. And a woman that's given by God, a woman that he can spend the rest of his days with, that's the most basic purpose of marriage. When you look at marriage, boil it all down and look at the scriptures, that's what it teaches. So a partner's needed. My second point, a partner suitable. So it has to be suitable. Notice the word, a helper comparable there in verse 18. It says a helper comparable to him. That helper comparable. Interesting word in the Hebrew, azer. Azer is the word. It means to help or help meet. The King James renders it this way. I will make him a help meet for him. That's King James. And then the NASB or NIV, if you have that, I will make him a helper suitable for him. But you get the idea there, the way it's rendered differently in these translations. The Hebrew word is not demeaning at all. Azer there. It's, It's a word that's used throughout this Old Testament. And let me show you in Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is the verse I have to show you this evening. Notice what it says in Psalm 10, verse 14. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the Azer the helper of the fatherless. That's the same word. And so God has in mind that men, we, we need help. We, 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 we're lost without our wives. Can I get an amen from any men in here that amen. are happily married? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Amen. All right, love it. <laughs> it's important for us to understand that. So the phrase here, suitable helper, could be translated this way, fit or complementary, or correspondingly. See, God has fashioned a woman and brought her to the man to fit, to correspond with his deepest need. Man, was not, it wasn't good. He was incomplete. He was undone. And so God's going to meet that need. God had intended, that was God's intention all along, was he was going to meet man's deficiency, man's unfinished, un- incompleteness with this Suitable helper is the way the scriptures render that. So again, this is God's design for marriage. Man and woman are designed by God to be corresponding partners. In other words, both are equal. And you've heard me teach this when I taught Ephesians on Sunday morning. I taught only the scriptures elevate a woman to her right place. Although there are Christians and men that have totally, and pastors that have totally missed the scriptures, When you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see clearly it begins with mutual submission. Remember me teaching you that. It's mutual submission. In other words, husbands submit to wives, wives submit. The word, remember the word, hupotasso? They submit to one another. That's what a marriage is. We work together and we both submit to the other person's need. I'm deficient in areas, and Esther's got those strengths. and, And it's so interesting to look at our relationship. We're very, very different. And yet God uses, he fits us, we're, we fit together, we correspond, and, we're, and that's God's design for marriage. A beautiful thing about God's design there. As husband and wife walk together, side by side, they share everything together. That's the idea, that's Christian marriage, by the way, defined by God. In a good marriage, everything is shared. Honesty, openness, love, all of those things are shared together. So God's design for marriage and companionship is to answer the human condition, the need of loneliness. That's what man's uh, 
problem or desire is for, to have this deep companionship, and God answered that. Let me just add this. Marriage isn't the only answer for loneliness. There are some people that are single. There are singles here tonight, so I, I don't want to exclude anyone as I teach this, and here's what, this is what's so beautiful about the body of Christ. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. People of all different ages, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds and political views. And we come together with, under Christ because we've been saved by Jesus Christ. We come together. And so the, the older believers can help the younger. The, the older women help the younger women. The older men help the younger men. The, the parents help. Like, remember last week I said, you better, you better treat these children in our fellowship right. I, I see you thump some little kid on the head in the hallway. I'm, you're going to hear it from your pastor. We're here to encourage our kids, Right? We don't want to put them down. We want church, we want them to love coming here. And so we, we talked about that last week. But it's so important that we, we're working together as a married couple, and God brings us together. And so we get that togetherness. If you, if you don't get it as a married couple and you're single, you get that in the fellowship. Today, just real quick, we had a funeral service for um, 21-year-old Jimmy who... Uh, died in an in a accident riding his bike. Somebody ran into him and killed him. Young man grew up in our fellowship. Very heart-wrenching time. The family's broken. But I, I'll tell you what, it just chokes me up even now thinking, this fellowship has given them thousands, not a thousand, thousands of dollars. This fellowship has fed them. This fellowship has been with them 24-7. And, and multiple people, they're writing letters, they're helping out. You can ask Joy, she's right back there, she'll tell you. And she's been with that family. But there's this fellowship is reaching out, reaching out, reaching out continually. And then it was so beautiful to see the body of Christ filled, was filled. And their family members, the unsaved that were here, they were surrounded by Christians and we worshiped together. That's the body of Christ. A single person is never alone in the body of Christ. And God meets our need through marriage, or in the church. It's beautiful. When you study the church and what, Jesus loved the church. How dare any Christian say, you know, I don't need the church. If Jesus loved the church, and, and the Bible says Jesus died for the church, right? He died for the church. If he died for the church, you say, oh, you know, I'm going to watch American Idol tonight. I don't want to go to church. I mean, think about that. How important is the church to God? And it should be to you. And by church, I'm not talking about walls or stained glass. I'm talking about people. You guys are what make the church special. And today, today was a beautiful example. Tomorrow, I'm doing a, a, a funeral service for a sister that was in our church 20 years. She's 80 years old. Her name is Margot um, Adams. Margot Adams sat in the back. I, I can see her right now sitting right there every Sunday morning, 20 years. And she hasn't been here for a year or so because she got sick and had to stay home. But, but um, I'm going to do her service tomorrow. And again, we're going to talk about her hope. Her hope was in Christ. And, and the church was surrounding her and encouraging her. And so the church is a beautiful thing. So marriage takes care of man's aloneness. And I believe for singles, the church, it's the church that takes care of that. Whether you're young or even an older single, the, the church is the answer. So... Let me just stop here for just a moment, though. We're talking about marriage, biblical marriage standing apart from, from every other relationship in the world today. But I want to stop here really quick, and I believe this passage we just read refutes homosexuality. 
It's so clear here. This, when you read Genesis 2, the understanding of Genesis in all of its areas, it touches every area of, of Christian doctrine, who God is, it, every, the doctrine of man. It, it, it's right here in Genesis. We learn it all. So learning it is so, so important. It's foundational to understand the rest of Scripture. And the biblical pattern that we're seeing right here one woman, one man for a lifetime commitment. It's Adam and Eve, man and woman. We see it again and again. Homosexuality in all of its forms is a perversion from God's perfect pattern. There's no doubt about it. Let me give you some scripture. Let me give you some scripture because I know that there's a lot of debate about that and not for those that have been Christians for a long time. And, and Christians, I, I love people. I, I love people. I love talking to people. And I don't mind who they are, or what they look like. I just like talking with people. And you should be that way too. But we should also understand what the scripture says. Homosexuality in scripture is always depicted as unnatural. It's not natural. Let me show you some scriptures real quick. Leviticus 18.2 says this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's un, notice the word. Have you ever seen that word before? You know what that word means? That's not, that's, that's an unusual word, abomination, to Eba means disgusting or wicked. It was used in terms of idol worship. And God in the Ten Commandments said, don't you ever worship another God but me. Remember that? I'm a jealous God. Don't you do it. It's wrong. And he used, it's an abomination. Idolatry is an abomination to God. Here he says, if you lie with a male as with a woman, it's an abomination. Let me show you another verse. This is in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here it is. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, or homosexuals, sodomites. Now, that whole area of heterosexual sin, adultery, or homosexual sin, equally an abomination, equally wrong. It's sin. That's my point is that it's all sin. And Paul is saying, don't you understand that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you get it? You've got to get out of this stuff. You've got to stop doing these things. The Bible indicates that people become homosexuals because of their own choice. The scriptures teach that. You weren't born that way. The scriptures refute that theory. God does not create a person with homosexual drives. He doesn't do that. Let me show you Romans 127. And again, I'm showing you these scriptures so you have some evidence here. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and then receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. I believe that we're all born in sin. We've looked at that. Romans 3.23 says everyone's a sinner, all of us. And all of us have the capacity to sin. There's no, absolutely no doubt we can sin in a variety of ways. But like a person could be born with a greater susceptibility to homosexuality, just like some people are born with a tendency to steal and other kinds of sin. But that's no excuse for the person to choose to sin by giving into their sinful desires, whether it be stealing or, or homosexuality. That's no excuse. It's still sin. That's the truth. That's what the scriptures teach. If a person is born with a greater susceptibility for anger or rage, does it make it right for him to 
give in to that desire? Absolutely not. And so we have to understand this. The same is true with homosexuality. The, the greater truth, here's the greater truth, God forgives. God forgives. And that verse I read in 1 Corinthians, let me show you another one. This is, it's all about forgiveness. It's all about forgiveness because the people in Corinth lived in that lifestyle as well. And notice what Paul says to these new baby Christians. He says, and such were some of you. You used to be thieves, you used to be homosexuals, you used to be sodomites, and such were some of you. But now, notice, you've been washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Isn't that a glorious truth? So, you choose to sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Adultery, homosexuality, or or a thief. You choose to do that. And there's a consequence for that. But when you come to Christ, you're washed and forgiven. I, I wouldn't doubt tonight that there was maybe some of you that came from that lifestyle. I've met some in our fellowship that thank the Lord. And they use this verse, oh, man, I've been washed. There's some thieves in our fellowship. There's liars. I bet every one of us fall into that category. Aren't you glad you've been washed? Aren't you glad you've been forgiven? Man, it's awesome. And so everyone, homosexuals, adulterers, thieves, can be forgiven. That's the, the truth there. So every believer should stand on God's side of any important issue, whether it's abortion or homosexuality. Let's be a church and a people that stand on God's side. Don't stand on the other side. Don't vote on the other side. You're not going to be happy, and God's not going to be happy either. I'm just saying. Stand on God's side when it comes to any issue of morality. So, Getting back to Genesis 2, a partner needed, a partner suitable, and then now he's going to make, he's going to make the woman. I love this, verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave name to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every burst, uh, every beast burst of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So the question here is, what's with the naming of all the animals? I believe this is how God teaches you and I. He lets us understand it. He doesn't just come up and and expect us to know it. He wants to teach. He's such a great teacher, and he's so gentle and so so, uh, able to, to go at our pace. He doesn't rush us, in other words. So he comes to Adam. We don't know how long it took. I, I read you know, different commentaries, and one commentary says, oh, that happened in a week. And then one says it took an eon to name them all. I don't know how long it took. It would take a long time. And Adam still has to eat. He has to stop for a little break, you know, and he's naming every insect, every beast of the field, every bird. I mean, it's going to take some time. And as these animals are brought before Adam, he's naming them. Now, the picture, picture this. God has no body. He's a spirit, right? But we have God walking with Adam in the cool of the morning. Who is that? Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. It's, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus, because Jesus is the only one that came as a man. And so I believe it's Jesus, and he's walking with Adam and says, Adam, come here. Look at this bug. What would you call it? Just like you as a parent would do with your, can you picture that? I love that. And Adam says, oh, that's a caterpillar. That's a rhinoceros. Wow, rhinoceros. 
you know, a leopard, elephant. He's naming the animals. But slowly but surely, Adam's getting it. I mean, they're beautiful, they're fuzzy, they're furry, they're different, they're, they're colorful, but they're not like me. That's, that's the point. And God allows him to learn that. Now, think about this in terms of your Christian maturity. It takes a long time. In other words, God will bring trials in your life to teach you. He'll allow a test to happen in your life. He allows you to go through some tough stuff. And it might last for a month or two or three or a year. But you'll finally, you're going to grow. You're going to grow through it. You're going to finally go bing like Adam. Bing. Okay, I get it. They're not like me. And I just love that about God. He's so gentle with us. He's so willing to teach. And that's what's happening here. As each animal comes by, Adam gives him a name. And then Adam finally discovers that, that although there's this beautiful array of animals, they're not like him. And so it's the question, where's mine? Where's my likeness? Where's my mate? But for Adam, verse 20, there was not found a helper comparable for him. So here's where God creates woman. And I call this Adam's rib, obviously, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And Adam slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which God had taken from man he fashioned into a woman and he brought her to the man. You've heard this before, but a Jewish rabbi said that woman wasn't taken from a bone that was in the head of man so that she would be above or a a bone from the foot of man so she'd be below, but from the heart, from the middle, so that she would be taken from his side for protection. And it's a beautiful thought there, close to his heart. I believe that God intended woman to be her husband's suitable helper by his side, next to his heart. I I believe that. There's There's some beautiful inference in everything that God does. There's meaning in everything that he does. The interesting thing here is the word helper. Again, the word helper. Same word used in Psalm 46 to describe God as the one who rescues. Let me show you this, Psalm 46, 1. Here it is. God is our refuge and strength and a very present helper, same word, in trouble. So men, your wife's your helper. You're in trouble. You're you're desperately in need of help. I'll admit that. Yes, that's me. And I'm so grateful that God's brought the helper, companion to rescue me, to help me, to save me from my, my loneliness. Now as we come here to verse 23, Adam is gonna wake up from this surgery Okay, this is important. And we get Adam's celebration is what I'm calling it. Lotus verse 23. And Adam said, this, remember he's naming animals. He's been naming animals for weeks or months or something. And now he sees this new, this new creature. <laughs> he's, he's pretty happy about it. He goes, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. And he names her. He's been naming animals. So he, immediately he gives her a name. He said, she's going to be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the first thing, again, upon seeing Eve here, it's, it's a very interesting, this is now. This is now, verse 23. This is now. This is now. Or, or if you translate that, it's wow. It's wow. That's really what he's saying there. This is now means here now or this is the one in the Hebrew. And Adam describes her as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, meaning, here's what it means. She's my family. She's part of me. 
This is my family. This is something, she's just like me. Just as we would say, this is my son. This is my blood relative. That's what he's saying, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's my family. This, this is, I can identify with her. And that's what he's doing. She's part of his family. And then he gives her a name. She shall be called woman. In the Hebrew, man, the word man, the English word man is ish, I-S-H, ish in the Hebrew. And it's interesting, it's, there's no relation in these two words. They come from two different root words, but they sound very similar. The word for woman is isha. And isha is really interesting, it sounds similar. And, and I, I think there's a reason for that. I think God wants us to know there's a com, uh, the link there. There's some kind of compatibility there. But isha and ish there they show a relationship. But the word isha in Hebrew, if you say that word, if you go to Israel and say isha, you know what it means? Soft. So Adam gives, he looks at this woman. He's, he, wow. And he goes, he must soft. Soft, he gives that name, soft. That's, that's what he calls her. It's kind of a beautiful thing. Isn't that beautiful? My wife puts all kinds of lovely smelling creams on her flesh to make it, what, ladies? Soft, right? Ladies love that. Your, your bathroom's filled with 5,000 bottles of soft things. Am I right? Us guys, we have one thing, you know. It's like shave cream and we're good. Women, it's got this bottle and that bottle and this bottle and pre-eye thing and after-eye thing, and it just goes on and on and on. But, but he, he sees this woman that, that God's just fashioning. He names her soft. I, I like that. So if you really want to know what the perfect woman is like, according to Adam, she was soft. He called her Isha, and I, I love that about the word. Now, the last two verses, real quick, we get Moses' editorial, as I said. So here's my last section here. God's design for marriage. Here it is. In a nutshell here, Moses says in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So godly marriage, here's just some real quick thoughts about it. Number one, it's exclusive. It's exclusive. God's design for marriage is that it's an exclusive union here. A man shall leave his father and and mother. So you leave that relationship you were born into and you have a brand new one. That's what he's saying. It's exclusive. And the marriage, this marriage between husband and wife is this lifetime commitment. It produces this new family unit. It's a brand new family. So, and I've said this before, you've heard me, but family is, is not children. A family is a husband and wife in a lifetime union. Children are an additional part of the family. But if you have a husband or you have a wife, you are a family unit. And you leave, he says, leave, verse 24, your father and your mother. That means, this is what that means. It means the cord's got to be cut sometime. You got to cut the cord. If you're still, you got one foot at home and you're married, it's not going to work. You're going to have problems. It's gonna, you're going to struggle you got to get out of the house. you got to leave. That's what he's saying. you got to leave, and then you what? You cleave. You glue. You stick together. That's what he's saying there. So your relationship is exclusive. Secondly, it's enduring. That's the joining or cleaving I just mentioned there in verse 24. And be joined to his wife. That word cleave means to cling to or hold to. Some use the term of glued together. Just think about that. Gorilla glue or or. What's that glue that you, you use, super glue, that you 
It's like, don't do this with super glue. Don't do that. You're gonna, somebody's going to do that tonight. You're going to say, what did, Pat, what did he mean by that? And you'll get super glue and go. <laughs> Just don't do that. You understand. But, but that's, this is the idea, enduring. You leave and then you cleave. That's God's, he wants this one partner in your life for the rest of your life. That's God's intention. Doesn't always work out that way, but that's God's intention. Jesus, listen to what Jesus says after this. He quotes this verse in Matthew 19. Notice what he says. I got the verse up for you. Matthew 19, this is Jesus. He says, so then they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Christian marriage, it's all about commitment. It's all about this covenant that you make. I'm gonna do a wedding in about a month. These people are gonna stand before, and they're gonna make a covenant with God that until they die, that they'll be one. Because that's, that's the relationship that's described in the scriptures. And interesting here, did you know that God takes your vow seriously? When you make that vow at a wedding, he takes it very seriously. Look at what Malachi 2 says. Just throwing this in here, Malachi 2.14, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Marriage relationship is always by covenant. Christian marriage, very symbolic. The, normally, the bride is dressed in what color? What color does she wear? White. White. What does that represent? Purity. It represents holiness in the Bible. And so you have this woman. She comes down the aisle, and she meets her man. And a lot of times, guys, there's some guys that wear white. I, I didn't want to wear white. I, I did the blue thing, and, and, and I had the most ridiculous. I should have brought a picture. But I had, the, like, it was like bozo-sized bow tie. I mean, it was big. I thought Devon's was big, but mine was even bigger than Devon's. He, you know, when you're married, and I wore my claw, my big, oh, there was platform shoes, and it was, it was insanity. Here comes Lurch, you know, in the church or whatever. But the wedding itself, white, covenant, it all represents this union, Christian marriage. I mean, I, I make fun of it and laugh, but really, it's a very serious moment, and it's a covenant you're making with the Lord. You've, I say I do, until death, um, until death do we part, I, I do. We make that covenant with the Lord. Someone said, Henry Ford, the maker of the Model T, they, they asked him, they asked Henry, they said, what's, what's, he had a successful marriage. And so somebody said, what makes your marriage so good? He said, the same formula as making a successful car. Stick to one model. I like what he says there. I think that's really true. So God's design for marriage is to be enduring. Thirdly, it's to be intimate. Notice verse 24, leave father, mother joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. The one flesh is an inference to. It's an inference to the sexual relationship in marriage. And one flesh is more than that. It's, it's more than that. But it isn't less than that. And I just, you know, I don't have to go any farther. But... Because out of this physical union, and this is what's so beautiful about that, God brings us together. Doesn't he bring us together after we fought or we had a problem or we don't see each the same way and we got into a stupid argument and then we come together again. And God's given us that desire. It's a beautiful thing. The way God has designed marriage to, to keep us coming back together, coming back together. And that's God's purpose. A good marriage has the word ours in it. It's ours. It's not mine, it's ours. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's intertwined, two people, two minds, two personalities. That's what this one flesh has to do with. It's, it's inferred as the physical side of the relationship, but it's also this beautiful side as well that, that talks about this whole union that we have together. And then verse 25 says that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. Very interesting. I thought about that today in my interesting way, I think, when I'm doing a study. Well, what if we came to church and people were naked? I mean, that would be scary, wouldn't it? <laughs> These guys were naked and they were, it was no big deal. They were not ashamed. And I was, <laughs> I just, I had this flash and I was like, no, 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 that would be, you don't see what I see. So I, it, but here's, here's what that means. It means that, that in their relationship, there was nothing hidden, nothing hidden. And that's, in a good marriage relationship, nothing hidden. I'm not hiding anything from my spouse. They know everything. They know my hurts. They know my joys. They, might, they know my disappointments. I share my vulnerabilities with my spouse. She shares hers with me. We, sh we talk about them. We pray for one another. We lift each other up when the other one's down. That's what a good relationship is about. That's what that really means, naked and not ashamed. So here's the conclusion for believers. If you're single, then here's, here's God's word. It's, it's really good. Use your singleness to be completely devoted to the Lord. Use it for that until God brings someone into your life. Use it for that. Serve the Lord. There's no ties. You can do that. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. I'll put it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 7. And this I say for your own prophet, Paul writes, not that I might put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. I can't always do that because I have obligation. I raised five children, and there's times you, you have to say, no, I can't do that. But as a single person, you can. And if you're married, here's the word for you. It, it's, it's long, but you know it. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's all about love. Love suffers long and it's kind. Love doesn't envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So he moves into this, I love the way he kind of ties it all together. He said, love, love bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. That's, that's what married people should be doing. That's our focus, that's our scripture. I read an illustration in closing. A little boy sat through a Sunday school class and he learned about the time Jesus went to a wedding and he turned water into wine. We were actually in that same city, by the way, in our tour a couple or last month. And the father says to his son, what did you learn in Sunday school today? Oh, we learned about Jesus, you know, he turned water into wine at a wedding. And so his dad said, what did you learn? And the boy thought for a moment and he answered, if you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. <laughs> and I think that's really good advice. If you have a marriage relationship, make sure Jesus is there. Put Jesus first. Because when you're looking at Jesus and your spouse is looking at Jesus, even if you're having trouble, if you're both looking at Jesus, you're looking and you're gonna end up in the same place, right? No matter how far apart you are, if you're looking at Jesus, he's a, you're, all, you're gonna be looking at Jesus you're gonna, and you're gonna move closer and closer together and closer to him. So important for you to do that. Tonight, since our, 
that concludes our study. We're gonna move into our communion service. And we're gonna take the next 15 minutes to just celebrate the Last Supper. Now the Last Supper was Jesus enjoying the Passover with his inner core, the, the disciples. And it was a long, I've told you before, it was a very, very long supper. It, it, the feast is so meaningful and every element has a purpose. And at the end of the supper is when Jesus took the cup and the bread, he broke it and he prayed and he said, this is my body. This is a representation, a symbolic representation. It doesn't, we don't believe in transubstantiation of the elements. We don't believe that this is blood. We don't believe this is body of Jesus. It's not. It's bread. It's I think it's Nabisco and Welch's. I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm trying to be factual. And, but it's meaningful to us because it represents the blood of Jesus. And he shed his blood willingly. He went to the cross. He died. And that's how my sins are forgiven. Praise the Lord. And the bread as well. So we're going to celebrate. We'll pass each element once. Hold your portion, please. And we'll, like the disciples and like Jesus in that last supper, we're going to pray and then take it together. So we're gonna move into that time right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this Bible study tonight in Genesis. I thank you for what you've taught us. Lord, it's challenging at times for us to uh, hear your word. And uh, I just ask God that, that whether there's singles here or maybe divorcees, Lord, that, that are hurting tonight, Lord, that you would just fill them with a joy to serve you and know you that forgiveness that can only come from you. We celebrate tonight in communion. And so I just pray, Lord, as we come to your table, that we remember all that you've done, Lord Jesus, for us on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you. We worship you now, Lord. We prepare our hearts in worship. Just use this time as we sing this song, Lord, and pass the element to just prepare our hearts. Forgive us, cleanse us, prepare us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you.